Thanks for pressing play. Today, we have another very special episode. One that uh, asks the question, will the future of the United States of America look more like Star Trek or Road Warrior? As you know, the United States is facing some meaningful challenges and, in my opinion, is in need of some deep, meaningful, real dialogue about our future at a time where dialogue seems to be a dying art. This episode is a great extension of our last one with one of the most qualified, experienced, and high-profile law enforcement leaders in America, Dr. Cedric Alexander, who, as you know if you listen to the episode, uh, is a Republican, but what I would call a great Republican. That is to say, someone in the Republican Party with an open mind willing to have real dialogue. Well, today we welcome Alec Ross. He is the author of the New York Times bestselling The Industries of the Future. And he has a brand new bestseller out called The Raging 2020s, Companies, Countries, People, and the Fight for Our Future. Alec is a distinguished visiting professor at the University of Bologna Business School, and he's a venture capitalist at Emplo, a global VC firm. He also happens to be a Democrat with an open mind and a reasonable, smart Democrat, <laughs> just like uh, Dr. Alexander is a Republican. During the Obama administration, uh, he served as senior advisor for innovation to the secretary of state. Hillary Clinton. The New York Times says, quote, Ross's view is from above, not the view of the people, nor even the politicians, an immense and unusually readable account. And General David Petraeus says Alec is, quote, among the most visionary of global thinkers on the future of technology and its implications, end quote. Today, we go deep on the future of America like only you can on a real dialogue podcast. You're listening to Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, and we are the number one business podcast for people who believe in the power of real different dialogue. Now, as Joey Ramone said, hey ho, let's go. Well, Alec, it sure is great to see you. Thanks for joining. No, it's it's awesome to be able to spend some time with you. Now, um, you've written a book that's causing a lot of people to ask a lot of questions and think about a lot of things. And I think uh, sort of consuming some of your work of late, I, it almost feels like you've been hanging out at least a little bit in my brain. Um, and so I have a number of things I'd love to get into with you. But before that, is there anything you want to jump into off the top? No, goodness, Christopher, I'm ready to just sort of giddy up with you here. Thank you for bringing up that book, The Raging 2020s. I wish I wish 2022 hadn't gotten off to such a raging start. You know, raging can be good or bad. It can be raging like a party at midnight, like my 19-year-old son thinks the word raging is implicitly good. As the parent of a 19-year-old, <laughs> raging can also have a negative connotation for me. So what I'm hoping, Christopher, is that this year and this decade can finish a little bit more raging like a great party than raging like, you know, sort of shaken with anger. Yes. Uh, uh, and as a huge fan of rage against the machine, anger is something I understand. Um, uh, and rage, I understand too, although it cuddles up to violence. And uh, as a side note, one of my dearest friends, Nisha said to me, 
She thinks one of my superpowers is I can get right on that anger line without going to violence. Look, that's a that's a powerful part of the creative process. I mean, you know, sort of figuring out how you can harness emotion, anger, volatility, and produce beautiful words, music, beautiful music, beautiful oil on canvas. Um, and also athletes too, like the greatest athletes are those who know how to focus their rage, you know, for like football players, there are only 60 minutes of football, of football in a football game in the NFL and the greatest athletes, the greatest football players are those who are able to, for the, for the six days and 23 hours of the week that aren't on the football field, they're able to keep the, those, that rage quiet. And then for the 60 minutes when there's actual football being played on the field, they let it out in a, in a discipline, in a disciplined, but still ferocious way. But, you know, anger and rage are really powerful parts of the creative process and powerful parts of athleticism and a lot of other things. It's fascinating we're starting here because I I am apt to say that anger is my happy place. Interesting. It's probably the emotion I most understand. That's interesting because, you know, a lot of, you know, we live in sort of a pharmaceutical world right now. And a lot of the time, a a lot of the interventions we make in people's lives are not about how do you manage anger? How do you control anger? How do you turn anger into something? That it's impo- that's positive or productive, but it's how do we drug it? How do we anesthetize it? How do we chip those edges off of you? Um, and you know, in fact, I'm sorry to keep coming back to rock and roll and to art and to athletes, but a lot of the time, the athletes that get dulled, you know, getting into their 30s, or you know, those great musicians who just kicked ass in their 20s. But then they might get dulled as they get into their 30s or their 40s. A lot of that is a concerted effort to sort of how do we dull the edges? How do we remove the anger as opposed to how do we harness it in a way to create something beautiful or productive? Yes, it's it's interesting that a lot of, particularly musicians, it, it seems to be the opposite for writers, although I haven't done a data analysis. But a lot of songwriters produce their best work early. And I think maybe, and to your point on athletes, you know, I'm a huge fight fan. And obviously there is a, uh, an age factor. You know, I think most fighters tend to peak around 28 to maybe 31, somewhere in there. Uh, so, you know, there's an age factor for older fighters, but there is a rage factor. Because when, when you're the contender coming up, that's one thing. When you're the heavyweight champion of the world and you want to maintain that, that's a whole other thing. And it's and they're different headspaces to be in. I mean, Mike Tyson, before he won the heavyweight champion, uh, was a different fighter than Mike Tyson, the heavyweight champion. They and and it's not because Mike Tyson, the heavyweight champion, was diminished physically at that point. It was because he was in a different headspace. But when he was rising and things were simpler and almost more binary, you're the champ or you're not. You got a, you know, a chip on your shoulder or you don't. It's 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 a different mind space. It's a different creative space. Yes, for sure. I remember years ago um, reading an interview with uh, tennis great Martina Navratilova, 
And the, I forget the exact, but the context was something to, around this topic. How do you keep your edge when, you, you know, she was, if she wasn't the winningest woman in tennis at the time, she certainly was close. And she says, well, I play a mental trick on myself, which is no matter what's happening in the game, I'm down 40 love. Well, and you know, it's funny how this concept can connect to completely different worlds. Like as you were talking, I was actually thinking about entrepreneurship. You know, I started a company when I was in my 20s and, you know, there were four of us, no rich uncles, no fat venture capital when we got started. And, you know, we had this, we were down 40 love, like Martina Navratilova said. And everybody we went and talked to initially told us why we were going to get our asses kicked, why we were stupid, why this was a bad idea. And that sort of grit, that anger, which propelled us for the longer work days with the more, with, into the more ruthless execution. Frankly, without that, we wouldn't have been successful. So it's weird now, just as I'm thinking about this as we discuss it, but I, I feel like this edge that Mike Tyson had before he became heavyweight champion, Martina Navratilova always having to think that she's down love 40. For me, it's also true in entrepreneurship. Like how does the scrappy startup compete and succeed against the incumbent or, you know, the fancy fourth time founder, you know, starting a fancy company engorged with venture capital and getting started on third base I think there are some connections here. So I think that this can be a part of anybody's rise, anybody's way of, of competing and succeeding in a world with a lot of competition. God, there's so much great shit here. So one of them, of course, I have zero experience in, in being a woman. I'm guessing you probably do as well. So it, maybe it's different for gals. Uh, I don't know. But I do know that um, best I can tell, Alec, that today... Uh, to your point on on drugging it out, we drug out the boy, right? So a lot of the boyness, the rebellion, the inability to sit down, uh, and I'm not a doctor and I'm maybe going to get in trouble for some of this, but like, you know, it seems to me as somebody who I think legitimately has ADHD, it, it seems to me that um, enough of us have it that it's called being a person and having a different brain. And even if it's not technically ADHD, there's a lot of little boys that exhibit that behavior and the idea of trying to get an eight-year-old boy to sit down for six or seven hours a day in school just seems fucking stupid. Anyway, building on that, um, I'm going to say something maybe a little outrageous. You and I are here because our ancestors were good at three things, fucking, farming, and fighting. And the people who weren't good at those three things, their bloodline didn't continue. And as a man, part of being a successful man is having that aggression. It's why we're here and our DNA continued. And yet it's unacceptable today. Uh, that's point A, or unacceptable. And point B, I don't hear much conversation around, um, I don't know how old you are, I'm 53, uh, men of my age talking to 35-year-old men and 15-year-old boys about that, their anger, their aggression, their, uh, their, their um, assertiveness is natural and good. And like everything, it needs to be channeled appropriately. And part of, this is just my theory, I'm testing it on you. 
part of learning to become a man is learning how to deal with that anger and that aggression and to channel it, you know, in my case, into creativity, in my case, into a boxing uh, bag, in my case, into a mountain bike or, or, or a pair of skis and into businesses starting. I started my first business at 18 um, and I have, I have not been in a fight with somebody since uh, outside of a gym, that is, um, since I was 12 years old. And what it would take for me to be violent in the world today would be an extraordinary circumstance where lives were on the line. Anything short of that, I, there's not a chance. Um, and yet we don't hear a lot about this discussion of taking responsibility for and cha- uh, positively channeling aggression and rage and anger. Now, look, I think that's an interesting point. It's Let me tell you, I, first of all, I identify with it. I mean, my, I'm 50 years old, okay? And what I figured out... It, you look so much that, better than I do. Jesus Christ. I don't know about it. that, Christopher. Come on, man. Come on. Um, well, you're very kind. I will take that, especially since turning 50 hit me like a loaded bricks. Um, I'll tell you how I. I'll tell you how I sort of personally dealt with this. And it's interesting. This is something my wife and I squawk at each other a little bit about. So my wife thinks that, you know, when guys are angry, um, there's something quote unquote wrong. Um, and you need to fix it. You need to work it, you know, go fix it, work it out. What do you need to do? What needs to happen? Why are you so And what I figured out at a certain point, you know, I, I was an athlete growing up was I had to continue. I had to find, uh, outlets for me to continue to be a competitive athlete. Uh, and if that was shut down, then, you know, I, I would be more angry and, and without an outlet to sort of let it out, then it would channel itself into in more unproductive ways. I do think for people who aren't athletes, uh, you know, and when I say athletes, I don't mean professional, I mean, just informally athletes. I do think that this is where, you know, a lot of binge drinking comes in, you know, when, when dudes want to bark at the moon every now and then, and they're pissed off and they're feeling shut in. If you don't have music as an out, as an outlet, if you don't have ath- athletics as an outlet, this is where a, a number of the guys in my peer group, this is where they just go out and they get really fucked up. Um, and a lot of the time, really bad things can come from that. And so it's the one thing I don't think is the answer is to just say, deal with it, get rid of it. You need therapy. Like there's something inherently wrong if, you know, you feel the need to bark at the moon a little bit. Yes. Amen. Hallelujah, brother. The other thing it makes me think about, if you go, if you go back to what you're saying about startups, years ago, I worked with this uh, incredibly smart guy, PhD, um, and he was a startup guy. His name was Nick DiGiacomo. He's passed away now. And, uh, and he was kind of an older guy and I was a younger guy at the time. And, uh, he explained to me two things in this regard. One was the, the distinction between nothing to lose and something to protect. And then he looked at me and he said, Christopher, big companies are conservative because they have something to conserve. Hmm. And so there's an interesting thing about um, having nothing to lose. And it, it's sort of, I don't know if it explains, but it's an interesting insight as to why Michael Jordan's son will never play in the NBA because he didn't, he literally didn't grow up hungry. No, that makes perfect sense. And, you know, 
part of how I write about this, this might seem like a weird tangent, but in this book, The Raging 2020s, part of what I write about is the the sense of why everybody seems so angry right now. And you and I have been discussing it at an individual level and the ways in which it can be made productive. But when that rage becomes more collective, when entire segments of society are angry, then what we get is violence. You don't get mass creativity. You get mass violence. You get, you get division. You get anger that pulls us apart a little bit as a country. So I do think that one of the interesting distinctions in all this for me is managing this at the individual level versus managing it at the societal level. And so one of the cool things that you brought up just now that that I think connects to this is when we talk about the difference between something to protect and nothing to lose, it makes me think a little bit about the nature of of frankly, of, of our politics right now, where I see rage, you know, in this book, The Raging 2020s, there are some words that literally are banned from the book. The words Trump, Obama, Clinton, like none of those names, none of those words actually appear in the book, because I find that smart people start having dumb conversations as soon as these names are evoked into the book. But just to focus on politics without focusing on these names for a minute, I do feel like a lot there is rage coming right now in America, both from the parts of America that have nothing to lose, as well of those parts of America that have something to protect and believe that they can't necessarily grow what they have. They're trying to protect what, what remains. Um, and I'm from West Virginia, you know, I'm from the coal filled hills of West Virginia. There's no blue blood in this body. I grew up, you know, working on a, working on a beer truck, uh, and delivering beers into the hills. And it's interesting, you know, West Virginia right now is a state of, you know, Appalachians defined in many respects by people, both who have nothing to lose and people have a little bit of something and they're fighting like hell to protect it. And it's interesting to me that both of these communities seem to be, in many respects, enraged. And it's urban, it's rural, it's suburban. Um, and this is sometimes what happens when the when there isn't a shared sense of what we can get together. It's an it's an interesting moment right now, I think, Christopher. Yes, and I'm I'm also uh, incredibly fascinated about this, and try to learn and read as much as I can about it. And one of the narratives that emerges uh, in in the thinking that me and my friends and partners do around this, and look, we may be biased because, uh, you know, we grew up in Silicon Valley. Uh, I started my first company at 18. I spent my whole life in, in, in what you might call a creation sort of a mode. And what has developed for me, and I think most of my, you know, friend group is, is this feeling like, well, we can create a different future. And, and in specific, we can create abundance where none existed because virtually all my friends are like me. They started with nothing. I had no education, no money, no nothing. And I started a company at 18 and that company failed and I learned and I it went on and then I ultimately, you know, and then away you go. And I've had a magical career in the technology industry. But if, 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 if you knew me today, it would be hard to imagine how much nothing I come from. And most of my friends are that way. And I th so I think if that's the life experience you've been lucky enough to have, you feel like with your own bare hands, you can create abundance. You can change the future for yourself and in some ways for, for many others. And so this is leading to a question, which is, 
is part of this as simple as those who live in a mindset of scarcity versus those who live in a mindset of abundance, nothing to lose versus something to protect? Yes. And the question, look, the question that's at the heart of this book of mine, The Raging 2020s, is, is the future going to look more like Mad Max or more like Star Trek? Is the future going to look more like Mad Max or more like Star Trek? And in reality, I think the future is likelier to look more like Star Trek, more hopeful, more, you know, one of more continued progress and abundance than the world of scarcity and angry chaos that is Mad Max, in large part because of our mindsets. You know, the degree to which the future does look more like Star Trek or more like Mad Max is entirely up to us. And I do think that if you have a a mindset and an approach that's rooted in production and creation as opposed to destruction, that's the beginning of any sort of progress. And, And part of what I try to do is you know, despite the title, The Raging 2020s, it's ultimately an optimistic book. And I'm an optimist in part because I think only optimists change the future. That's a sweeping statement. I know that piss will piss some people off, but I believe it to be true. I believe that only optimists shape the future for the better. Have you, have you heard this expression about entrepreneurs? To, to be an entrepreneur, you have to be stupid enough to think it's possible? <laughs> that sounds like me. I have not heard that expression, but it sounds it sounds exactly right. But look, you know, Christopher, you're right. You know, if you if you start from the position of being curled into the fetal position and saying, "Oh my goodness, I've got to protect this little thing that I've got," then you're not. Then the world is going to be worse because you've got this protective mindset uh, where everybody is in in this defensive crouch. But if you do think you can be a creator, if you do view abundance uh, is what we ought to be driving toward, I think we can and should have a more hopeful future. And I, I personally am on the, the optimist side of this, no matter how bad things can be at any given moment. I mean, even, even thinking about now with COVID, you know, you would say that this is the worst moment imaginable. And yeah, it's really tough. But one of the things that's actually revelatory about COVID, which may have a longer term impact than the virus itself is this mRNA technology that we've created, which can be applied to, you know, 15, 20 other maladies. And, you know, when adapted to other things that, you know, frankly, kill a lot of people can produce longer lifespans, you know, beyond just curing us of viruses. So it's, it's interesting some of what may come out of this. Well, to, uh, to just echo your point, one of the things that we've been writing and talking a lot about around here lately is um, one of the silver linings of the COVID tragedy is the receptivity to different has never been higher. And so, you know, if you think about a simple thing like, um, quote unquote, telemedicine, we've had the technology to do that for the better part of 20 years. And there was a whole bunch of bureaucratic and legacy thinking and that, that stopped that from happening. Right. And when all that had to get knocked to the side, the bureaucracy and stupidity of all of that, we had telemedicine overnight and I had my first physical (laughs) over zoom and it was, it actually kind of worked. And so, so the other part of this is not only have human beings stood up incredible new technology, the vaccine probably being the preeminent example, but you know, the other one that doesn't get talked about for being in a tech entrepreneur, it's a fucking miracle. AWS didn't blow up every 10 seconds. 
Right? Oh my goodness. It's holding all, it's holding everything together. It's holding everything together. It's a fucking miracle. Zoom didn't blow up every 20 seconds. Right. And I, I know Eric, not well, he's been on the podcast a couple of times and so forth, but I have a sense of the job they had to do to get to scale at that level. And, you know, you could keep going, right? Even look at a Walmart or, or a Costco or a DoorDash or, you know, Instacart, et cetera, et cetera. What happened here was extraordinary in terms of how people uh, rose up, leveraged the technology, leveraged the science to produce an extraordinary outcome. And as a result of that, I believe, and I'm kind of bouncing this off you, that there is at least a medium length tail that says that right now, if you have something breakthrough, if you have breakthrough category, innovation, new, new kind of thinking, all of this stuff has created a receptivity amongst people um, th that is un unlike anything, certainly I think I've seen in my lifetime, but I'm curious what you think. No, not only do I agree with that, but I think that that, is, that point is affirmed by lots of history. Uh, you know, the artist Pablo Picasso said that every act of creation begins with an act of destruction. And if you look at those periods in history where the, the, there have been the biggest changes in society and societal norms, they oftentimes have come after moments of great destruction. So the Roaring Twenties, for example, it's not a coincidence that the Roaring Twenties, which saw some of the most mind-bending changes in the way that people lived uh, people, the way that people lived and created took place immediately after World War I and the Spanish flu. Uh, if you think about the period of greatest public policy innovation in the West in the past 300 years, uh, it was in the mid-19th century after there was this period from, you're going to have to let me, apologies, I got to geek for, be the history geek for a second. You, you, you can go, you can dig any rabbit hole you want and I'll chase you down. All right. <laughs> All right. Here's a rabbit hole for you, Christopher. From 1800 to 1840, is this period called the Engels Pause. And this was a period when uh, industrialization took root. It's when most labor went from being on a farm to in a factory, went from country to city. Uh, but this was the industrialization of like the Charles Dickens novels, the 11-year-old losing their hand in the, fa in, in the factory, and, you know, the black soot skies. So for 40 years, industrialization took root, completely changed the way that people lived and worked. But it was kind of shitty if you were a worker. Like some, some people became incredibly rich. But if you're a worker, life really sucked. So what was the result of that? The result the, the, of that... The original Industrial Revolution was not fun for most people, right? It was horrendous. So it's, you know, it was a period of destruction, like World War I, like COVID. It, it, was horrendous. So what then happened? Well, there were ideological movements that took root, like communism. The Communist Manifesto was written in 1848. More consequentially, it, was, it started the largest wave of revolutions in the history of Europe um, and, in, and of the West. So what then ultimately made industrialization work? What made industrialization work was that as we innovated technologically, we also, and to your point, Christopher, we, we came up with new ideas and accepted them. We had this concept, the unions actually had this concept of a weekend. Weekends didn't exist 200 years ago. The only day you would get off work was, you know, Sunday if you're a Christian and Saturday if you're a Jewish. Uh, the idea of a minimum wage, child labor laws, all of these were 
considered radical ideas. Even uh, kids going to school, right? And sort of essentially it's a mandate. You, you can't not take your kid to school, right? Public e- education used to be exclusively for the elites. I mean, the only people who were literate were elites. But then we said with industrialization and we're creating all this wealth and well-being, the way that we can create more access for more people to knowledge and to well-being is through public education. That was another crazy idea that then became universal. Uh, off the top of your head, do you know, was there, was there screeching opposition to paying for it? You know, it's funny. It, it helped that there were revolutions at the time. Mm. So this is ultimately what created some equilibrium between government citizens and business. So how do you harmonize the relationship between, you know, the owners of industry, the sort of masters of the universe with the governments, with the system? So it was, it took some good old fashioned leadership. Like in Germany, there was a big, tough general named Otto von Bismarck. And Otto von Bismarck was like the caricature of the tough guy, uh, German general, but he is the one who ultimately led to the creation of sort of a social contract that worked. And so you, you do have to have some give and take, uh, you, you do have some, have some give and take in this world. And sometimes it means government bigfooting a little bit. Sometimes it means citizens bigfooting a little bit, you know, taken to the streets, but getting to the point of where there's some equilibrium is I think how, how, how we diffuse some of the rage and the anger at a societal level. Yes. So maybe uh, let's go there. I want to ask you something that's been on my mind for the last few months, and I've tried to do as much reading and podcast listening and trying to educate myself as possible. And uh, we just had on um, uh, Dr. Cedric Alexander, who, um, as you probably know, is an extraordinary uh, law enforcement leader in our country. And I talked with him about this as well. So here's sort of my aha. Um, And I'll frame it in a question. Are we, based on the last handful of years, are we more likely or less likely to see violence in the U.S. at the midterms that are coming and the 2024 election or less likely to see violence as a result of those two major events? I wish I had a different answer. And goodness knows I could be wrong, but my sense is that we're more likely. My sense is that we're more likely just because people's blood are up. People's blood is up, you know, regardless of whether you're talking about the political right or the political left. The political right is not going to believe any outcome that disadvantages them. The political left is not going to believe or is going to find false any political outcome that comes from the that that advantages the political right. So I do, I feel like people have got their blood up and I feel like they're ready to fight. So I hope I'm wrong. There are people who know more about this than I do, but my sense, whether I'm in West Baltimore or I'm in West Virginia, is that people are angry. We are a deeply divided, the United States is a deeply divided country. And, you know, People are not just going to tweet about it. They, they are very capable of getting out and swinging about it. Yes. Okay, so thank you for that. So uh, a, uh, a follow-on. And I am generally optimistic. So this is a strange statement for me. 
and I, I don't say this like an absolute. I'm gonna I'm gonna phrase it like an absolute, but I don't. It's not quite an absolute in my mind, but I'm gonna say it as such to see kind of how it lands. The aha I've had is that uh, the government's ability to calm the situation down in the United States now, uh, at least at the federal level and at many of the states, seems virtually impossible, point A. Not only are they not calming it down, they're escalating it. And the other aha is they're doing all of this in cahoots with the media because they've all figured out that monetizing anger and hate to our earlier discussion at the country level, the state level, is fairly easy. If people are angry and if the average American hates other Americans and the average American thinks other Americans are the biggest threat to America and that what they are doing is saving our democracy against the evil that's trying to destroy our democracy, which is other Americans, then what's happened is we've gotten to a situation where politicians and the media are monetizing hate at a rapid rate. And it's really working in the near term because when people are angry, they watch TV or they go on the internet, et cetera, et cetera. And of course they're more likely to donate to candidates and vote for those candidates. So I'm going to sort of ask you two questions about that. A is that stream of thinking. Does that make sense to you or no? And if no, please, I want to hear all about it. And if it does, is a conclusion called the government and the media's ability to have us have a breakthrough in uh, uh, unity, that is to say, we may not agree about everything, but we don't want to kill each other anymore, is de minimis at best. But I'd love your reaction to all of that. So in politics, and Christopher, we haven't talked about my background, so I'll just sort of do a little bit of a reveal here, you know, just to be in the interest of being transparent, I ran tech and media policy for Barack Obama's first presidential campaign. I worked for President Obama for four years. You know, I've so I've been in this world. So I I, I want to give that I want to give that disclosure before answering that. Now, having having given and also that I hate to interrupt you, but also the fact that you're uh, an entrepreneur, an author, yes. an educator. It, it's a it's a, it's an interesting. Uh, I don't know if you know this word. There's a great word in French called melange, and it roughly mm-hmm. translates to mix, but somehow it's a much greater word than that. Anyway, you're a fascinating melange of experiences and backgrounds. Uh, and I think as a result, you have a very uh, unique lens on these things. Uh, well, thank you. And so, Christopher, here's what I would say. Most of people in power, in power seeking power, particularly in and around politics, want one of four things. They want to increase one of four things or some combination of four things. And you focused on one of the four. It's money, power, fame, sex. That's what people are, that's what people are really striving for. Can I make more money? Can I get more power? Can I become more famous? Can I get laid? Those are the things that I see driving a lot of the behavior um, by people operating in and around this world. Now, money is a huge part of this, but, you know, and I think that, so what I think, Christopher, is I think you got it partially right, but what I think for a lot of the actual political actors themselves, they are trying to do this also for power, for fame, and occasionally for sex. So if you're a United States senator, you're not necessarily going to make more money. 
you might get some increased donations for your campaign um, by monetizing anger. Uh, and there is that. But I think there's a real correlation between uh, between exploiting anger and becoming more famous. And by virtue of becoming more famous, you grow more powerful. And by virtue of becoming more famous and more powerful, you know, for a certain subsection of these folks, they're more likely to, you know, get laid or have sex with people that they otherwise wouldn't get to. So for me, there are these four drivers of human behavior. You know, so earlier in our discussion, you said the reason you and I are sitting here uh, was because our ancestors were good at at three things. And what were they again, Christopher? Fucking, fighting, and farming. <laughs> All right. Fighting, fucking, and farming. So the, the quartet that I would say drives a lot of behaviors now, it's, it's money, power, fame, sex. So I think money is a consequential part of it. And if you are the media company, you, you know, if you're an executive in a media company, your incentives are to monetize it. If you're an actual politician, I find the power, the fame, the power and the fame are equal to or greater than the drive for money. And for a su- for some subsection of it, it's the sex. So thank you for that. And um, uh, at the risk of going to an overly dark place, um, what you didn't say is one of the drivers is making a difference. So that's so that is what is supposed to bring people into this world. And it's supposed to be what sustains them. And for a lot of people, that's true. But when you talk about the motivations of the people who are exploiting anger, I don't think it's to make a difference. So I think we need to make a distinction between those politicians, those political actors, those people in power who are monetizing or exploiting anger versus those who are not. I don't think it's a hundred percent. Yeah. So that's the distinction. So your comments are as it relates to politicians and media who are monetizing the anger and the hate, not all of them. (laughs) Exactly. No, I mean, look, there are 535 members of the United States Congress. I don't think 535 members of the United States Congress are exploiting and monetizing hate. And I think that a lot of those who aren't are doing what they're doing to try to make a difference. Um, You know, again, I hate invoking political figures, but I spent a lot of time with Barack Obama. Um, You know, I worked for him for six years and I genuinely don't believe that he tried to monetize or exploit hate. Um, you know, just his character, his nature, was he put a lot of effort into diffusing hate. Um, now, I think that a lot of people hated him, and a lot of people would argue that he contributed to a rise in hate. But it certainly, if, if that's true, and I don't know whether it's true or not, if that's true, it's certainly not because he intended for that to be the case. Yes. And I don't have anywhere near that close a a relationship with any president. Um, But I did spend a little bit of time with um, uh, Colin Powell, General Powell. I don't think General Powell was about that at all. I knew I I worked at the State Department for four years and he he looked after me a little bit and you and he was in it entirely. To make a difference. And yes. he, he would have said that anger and hate uh, and exploiting that was regressive, irresponsible and anti-American. Yes. And I know you would probably know better than me. So uh, please chime in um, through him and some conversation. 
uh, this, and I and I knew some other folks kind of around George W. Bush. So, but far removed. But my sense is, as a citizen, and having talked to some people who worked for him, that say what you will about his presidency or him as a person or whatever you want to say, that man was trying to do the best job he could for our country. Uh, and he was not trying to monetize hate. I don't think there's any question about that. Um, and again, you know, his politics are different than my politics, but you can't say that he was building a movement rooted in hate or, you know, and, and he was one, especially if you look at the period after 9-11, uh, you know, there were a lot of people who wanted to kill every Muslim within arm's reach of them. And if you actually listen to the words coming out of George W. Bush's mouth in the days, the weeks, the months and the years after 9-11, you hear, I think, with a hell of a lot of authenticity, a hell of a lot of authenticity, the degree to which he implored the American people to not hate Muslims, you know, to hate people who exploited religion, to who exploited the religion of Islam. But he was always very careful to say, you know, this is not, we don't hate Muslims, we're not in war against Islam. And so I think that he, like Obama, like Colin Powell, completely rejected the monetization uh, and exploitation of hate. Uh, it's fascinating that you think that from, from your seat. So if you come to this place that says, uh, okay, we're more likely than not less to have violence around the midterms and the coming presidential election, and our government's ability to calm things down, to create any kind of unity, or at least enough unity where we can agree that we disagree on things, but that we want civil discourse, not civil fucking war. If our government can't do that, um, I look at it and you the government, business, and the people. Well, it's up to business and the people. And one of the things that I've been trying to communicate is, and I want to want you to tell me if you think, you know, because some people say, I'm too pessimistic, you're this, you're that. And I want, I hope they're right. And I, I, I don't want to be wrong. That said, I think it's very possible that the biggest risk, if you're a CEO or an entrepreneur or a VC, the biggest risk to your company or company's 2022 business plan is nobody's buying Teslas in, in, in December if Chicago's on fire in November. And the violence we had in the summer of 2020, at least to me, was terrifying. The fact that we had multiple governors and mayors essentially say, yeah, sure, fuck it. Just take over part of the city, burn shit down, steal whatever you want, kill some people, rape some people. We're going to let this happen for weeks. And it does. And then, of course, uh, January 6th. Um, I, I guess my question is, what role do business leaders have? And then in addition to that, what role do regular citizens, community leaders, church leaders have in trying to get us to realize that uh, while we may disagree, um, we're not each other's enemy. And if we become each other's enemy, there's going to be a really big fucking problem. No, look, I think there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, but you're absolutely right. Like how many Teslas are getting sold when, you know, cars are being flipped over in the street, right? Uh, there was, after January 6th, corporate America was pretty outraged. 
and what I saw at the time was they said, you know what, we are not going to support political candidates who foment violence, who, you know, got behind a narrative that there was a crooked election in the United States or other such thing. It's an open question how if that sentiment still exists. How long did it last? You know, once the fever broke a little bit or the appearance of the fever broke, you know, did the did corporate America's commitment to say we are not going to fund politicians who ferment extremism continue as well? I'm a, I'm a little bit skeptical about that. What I will say is if we go back to something you brought up, which is the role of money in all of this, if politicians are really motivated, at, at least in some substantial part by money, then the way that corporate America can play a responsible role dealing with at least the political side of this is they cut off the money to people who are encouraging and fermenting the violence. Um, at, a, at the community level, like if there are protests in cities, if there are, you know, localized militia actions, you know, the Proud Boys and, you know, groups like this who are not necessarily controlled by members of the United States Senate, then I think that corporate America is going to have to think a little bit differently about its corporate social responsibility, about its philanthropy, about thinking about how its assets can be used more positively and productively. Um, because you do shrink the total market. And, oh, by the way, the stock market crashes when these things happen. You know, if if Russia invades Ukraine, the market is going to lose, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars worth of market cap. Uh, polit- geopolitical unrest is one of the greatest risks to doing business globally right now. Geopolitical risk internally, as well as geopolitical risk uh, internationally, you know, if we are in a, if we're in a, in a standoff with China, if we're in a standoff with Russia, this does nothing but make our supply chains and our trade all the more fucked up. So, uh, thank you for that. I, I agree completely. Here's the thing that boggles my mind: if foreign terrorists, quote unquote, had done what. Antifa and some of the extreme left did in places like Portland and Seattle and, and Kenosha, et cetera. If uh, foreign terrorists uh, had attacked the Capitol, I, 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 my assertion is that uh, our response would have been massively, exponentially different. 3,000 Americans died on September 11th. And we spent several trillion dollars responding. And so what the fuck is wrong with us, Alec, when domestic terrorists on the extreme left and the extreme right? And so the funniest thing to me about them is when you listen to them, they sound so similar. It's like, well, you've gone so far left and you've gone so far right. You know, you're the same piece of shit. It was a very different, slight different color, but not much because you're both fucking right in the same asshole spot. But I digress. Um, we didn't respond in any way near the way I thought we should have responded during those events. And what we've done, what, what, I, what we've done in terms of prosecuting and sending these people to jail. You want to talk about getting me to anger. It is inconceivable to me that the people behind these destroying of our cities and the people behind attacking our capital 
uh, are getting light sentences and little slaps on the wrist and little thing to wear on the foot at the house for 10 minutes. And um, it, it boggles the mind. And so I guess my question to you is, why do we as Americans, and in this case, American business leaders who fund these politicians, um, why do we view domestic terrorists as fine and international terrorists as something we need to spend trillions of dollars on? So I don't know. So the reason I and I just say that as plainly as I do is because I see these sentences and it and it boggles my mind. Um, part of it is that they have protection, so to speak, from within the country. So it's like you know the January sixth guys are in the Republican Party. We're like, oh, they're crazy, but there are crazy guys. And the Antifa people within the Democratic Party, you might say, oh, well, they're crazy, but there are crazies. Um, and so there's a legitimization of extremism that's taken place within both parties, and they hold the others to account, um, but are too slow to recognize, um, they're too slow to, to take responsibility for sort of the cra- their own crazies. I mean, one of my old bosses used to say, you know, you can't keep snakes in the backyard and hope they only bite, you know, people who are, who are, and, and hope that they don't bite you. They just bite people who are coming into your backyard. And I do think that, you know, the unfortunate, one of the unfortunate aspects about this is the lack of recognition that these people, you talked about, you know, how they, how they have more in common with each other than either would either admit. They really, really do. They really, really do. They are, and a lot of what the source of their anger is, is very, very similar. They just draw somewhat different conclusions. And for me, what's interesting, like this for me is sort of the barstool conversation. When I go home in West, when I go home to West Virginia, if I'm sitting at a bar in, you know, country roads, West Virginia, and I've got a beer or two in my belly, and I'm just talking to the dude with a flannel shirt beside me, you know, me and my flannel shirt. And we start talking about politics. We don't talk about names. You just talk about politics. It's interesting. The guy I'll be talking to beside me, will he'll be like really pro-Trump and really pro what you would think is Bernie Sanders in the same sentence, in the same paragraph. And for them, it all makes sense. But as soon as you say something, oh, yeah, you know who said that? There's a, that exact same thing that you believe is Bernie Sanders. And then they go, oh, no. And so it's interesting. People don't realize, um, people don't realize the nuance a lot of the time in their own thinking because it's been overly simplified into this sort of very strange political binary. Thank you for that. And I believe you said in both parties, there's been the legitimization of extremism. And this is the part that drives me insane. If our guys do it, it's fine, or there's some crazies. But when their guys do it, and vice versa, whether it's on horrible acts of violence, murder, destruction, or even dumb policy, right, or or some some dumb sex scandal or whatever it is, right? If it's our guys, well, we down, downplay it. Well, if it's their guys, we're all over it. That, that, that drives me insane. Um, and so uh, you have said in your work that you think the future is more Star Trek and less Mad Max. And yet we've now spent a bunch of time talking about 
uh, Mad Max at the, at the coming midterms and at the 2024 presidential election. So, so Alec, uh, before I drink three bottles of uh, Jack Daniels and smoke a giant bag of weed and try to make it all go away, tell me why the future is more like Star Trek. <laughs> you know, it's because of our builders, Christopher, because, you know, most of us are, most of us are not out in the streets burning things down. Most of us are not political extremists. Most of us want to get, want to live and work toward a world of greater abundance. And simultaneous to all of this batshit crazy politics, I would argue that the entrepreneurial environment is better than it's ever been. I mean, the these 22 and 23 and 52 and 53-year-old entrepreneurs with big new ideas and are imagining and inventing the future. So simultaneous to I feel like we're in a sort of geopolitical recession, we are in, in an entrepreneurial boom. And what's so cool about this in part is it's not just like we're creating more apps or more e-commerce. I mean, a lot of the entrepreneurship that I see right now, uh, you know, I think about I think about a company. It's called Ophelia. Came out of Y Combinator, which is like ground zero for creating badass startups. And what is Ophelia doing? It's coming up with with programs to fight uh, narcotics addiction. Uh, you know, I'm th- I see. A company, there's another one that comes immediately to mind called Andela. And the thinking behind Andela is that talent is universally distributed, but opportunity is not. But if we can identify world-class potential in poor communities and then bring them like Google-class technology training, then they will be economically resilient and that'll create an economic good. That company now has an over a billion-dollar market cap based on that kumbaya idea. So the, the, the answer to your question, Christopher, is really I, our entrepreneurs are building. They're imagining and inventing the future, and they are being positive and productive simultaneous to a lot of the destruction that's taking place politically. Alec, is it wrong for one man to love another man? <laughs> That's it would my be politi- it would be politically incorrect of me to suggest otherwise, Christopher. <laughs> That's my answer too. Well, because I, I believe right. I, look, I, I believe the way some some radical preachers believe, because it's my life, and it's the life of so many others that I know. And and for some people, entrepreneurship is a way up in the world. You know, you go to Stanford and you write an algorithm and Sequoia gives you 200 million bucks and bam, great. And God bless you. And I spent a lot of time with those people and I think they're amazing entrepreneurs. And for many of us, entrepreneurship is a way out to radically change our own future and the future of our families. And you and I both know when an entrepreneur rises up, she often not just takes her own family she takes her, her people with her, and sometimes she takes a whole community or whole market category with her. And so the ripple effect is incredible, and the data is fantastic. About a year and a half, two years ago, the data on entrepreneurship in the United States was, was horrifying. The Wall Street Journal wrote a big story called The Crisis in American Entrepreneurship. I was pounding the table about it, writing about it, podcasting about it, etc. Here you and I sit, and if I, if I understand the data, and I don't have it right in front of me, but... 
um, startup uh, startup founding is at all time high. Um, uh, women uh, entrepreneurs are at an all time high. Uh, entrepreneurs of color. And women entrepreneurs of color are at an all-time high. Now, maybe it's off a small number, but at least it's moving somewhere in the right direction. And um, investment is extraordinary. Um, I can't remember the exact number, Alec, but the journal just did a big piece on Web3. And I believe the Web3 investments had been sort of flat at three and a half to four billion in VC for the last few years. And it shot up to maybe you know, 14 billion, 16 billion. There was a meaningful step function in 2021 around Web3 venture capital investments and, all, and you know many other indicators. So it, to your point, just to underscore your point, it, that's how it looks to me too, that the level of creativity of, 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 of sort of uh, category innovation, technology innovation happening right now, uh, and per the discussion we had a little bit ago on receptivity to change and, and different, you put all these things together with an economy that, while not perfect, uh, there's a lot of cash looking to be deployed by both consumers and businesses. Um, it does point to a positive future if we if we can stop fucking killing ourselves. No, look, I'm in violent agreement with you. Violent agreement with you. And and the thing that that I just want to underscore in all this is how wide ranging the entrepreneurship is. People are trying to solve a really wide range of problems, whether it's addressing climate change, whether it's addressing addiction, whether it's addressing you know, the democratization of access to financial services. I just love how expeditionary it is. I like the fact that you know, people have got such wide open minds and the problems they aren't trying to solve aren't narrow. It's not just how do we deliver advertising more efficiently? How can we reduce the number of clicks to buy something? I see not that there's anything wrong with that, but you know, we spent a lot of time and a lot of money figuring out how to do that. I see a lot of the greatest minds now focusing on a lot of different challenges. And that excites me too. Yes. The other thing, let me bounce this one off you. Uh, we've just uh, been writing about um, entrepreneurship for, uh, young, like super young people. We just did a piece we called, uh, 18 ideas for 18 year old entrepreneurs. And, you know, if you think about your smartphone, you know, one of the things we like to say is this is not a smartphone. This is a platform for legendary creativity. And one of the things we advocate in the, our most recent piece for, um, teenage entrepreneurs is don't just be a consumer of things. Right. Figure out how to participate in those things in one way or another and and turn yourself into a digital creator. And so um, in, in that sense, and this may seem like a weird segue, but hang with me here. Uh, as I've read about the age demographic of who has t historically been involved with Antifa burning our cities and and um, Trump supporters attacking the the, uh, the capital. And I'm not a data scientist and I didn't put this in a data platform, but it appears most of the people conducting the violence are middle-aged white males. And the Atlantic did a, a fascinating report recently. And one of the things they looked at in the report was um, where they came from. Not so much was it red or blue, 
But what had been the demographic change in the uh, voting area over the last 10 or 20 years? And so what they found was the um, attackers, the rioters on Jan 6th, many of them were white 50-plus-year-old males who came from um, parts of the country where there had been an increase in black and brown people over the last 15, 20 years or so. Interestingly enough, who does not appear to be in a lot of these violent situations are 18-year-olds and 20-year-olds. And I'm not the historian that you are, but if my history is right, historically, it's the younger people who are protesting against the system. And here we have a situation where, and again, I'm wildly generalizing, and I want to bounce all this off you, where it appears it's older people who are doing the attacking and who are angry as opposed to um, younger people. What are your thoughts on that, Alex? Yeah. So, so first of all, look, it maps to, it maps to the reality. So it's, it's interesting. There's this thing, a concept called palingenesis and palingenesis is the evocation of a utopian past that may or may not have existed before. So when Mussolini, okay, hold on there, handsome. Yes. Some yes, of sir. us are not as learned as you are. Uh-huh. Um, say that whole thing again for me, nice and slow. <laughs> palingenesis. Uh, it's the evocation of a utopian past that may or may not have existed before. So like Benito Mussolini, uh, fascist dictator, as he was building his movement, you know, his great line was, Rome will rise again. Uh, Adolf Hitler, you know, what was a- Adolf Hitler? People forget he was democratically elected. D- Adolf Hitler was democratically elected in part because middle-aged uh, white men in Ger- Germany had been emasculated uh, based on their being defeated in World War I. So the people who propelled the rise of Nazism, in many respects, were, in this case, German men in their 30s and 40s who were emasculated. And you know, he said, you know, we will restore Germany's honor. When Donald Trump says we're going to make America great again, it's classic palingenesis. And who does this appeal to? This appeals to uh, the emasculated middle-aged plus white man who, when he was in his teens, maybe in his 20s, even if he didn't have a fancy college degree, the United States was the most powerful country on earth. And he is a somebody in good standing in the working and middle class, sat at the head of the table and dinner was ready at six. Watch the evening news at six thirty. Go bowling at seven. You're at the. You're a master of the universe. That has changed, and so it's interesting. I'm just talking about, for example, you know, the the Trump supporters in this respect. But if you look at the composition of the January sixth protesters, a lot of those people um, are emasculated, middle aged plus, who have seen the world change around them, and their standing has diminished. It's either stagnated or diminished. Going back to West Virginia, where I'm from and where my parents still live, when I was growing up in West Virginia, the politics were kind of boring. It was sort of Union Democrat. And now it's more Taliban. I mean, it's it's the politics in West Virginia are more Taliban. And the reason for it is it's really it's not being propelled by 18-year-olds at all. It's being propelled by 48 and 58-year-olds. And again, it's that anger is the rage that comes from emasculation, oftentimes because they see people 
rising in power, rising in wealth, rising in well-being, who look differently than than them. And it completely changes um, their sense of themselves. Now, there are some people, like there's a a very smart professor at Harvard named Michael Sandel, who wrote a book called, uh, I think it was called The, The... the tyranny of merit. Yeah, it was called the tyranny of merit. And Sandel says we actually need to blame the elites for this because the elites have been assholes to these, you know, working class. It's they've been emasculated because people who went to fancy colleges have made them feel like shit. And we've said you're not an impressive or important person unless you go to one of these fancy colleges. So there's a lot of debate. Uh, right now among the intelligentsia, so to speak, about whose fault is it. But one thing that I think is irrevocably true is what you said, Christopher, is a lot of this is being propelled not by the 18-year-olds who stormed the Bastille, but rather by people with gray streaks in their hair. And and just to have a kind of uh, balance the conversation, um, it seems like and maybe not a hundred percent mirror. Maybe you'll tell me, but on the on the uh, maniacs on the left, uh, we see something similar, right? Yes, there's a younger sort of crowd that maybe gets violent and that's inspired by AOC, and so there's some maybe a little bit more younger demographic there, but there's a lot of an older demographic that you know when Maxine Waters says you know go and get in Republicans' faces and do stupid shit um it's older people that that uh that sort of people who feel like their cheese has been moved that are that are angered and 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 responded to bernie in that regard um and that the far left uh whips them up into a you know more socialist mindset around what the government owes us and wealth redistribution and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that's my sense of it, but um, I'm curious as to yours. So the part of this that I understand better is the younger people. Um, so I, you know, look, I, I don't know the data. I don't know ma- the makeup. What the aspect of this that I understand a little bit better, which is not to condone it because I don't condone it, but it's a lot of the 20-somethings and early 30-somethings who now have this affinity for socialism. And as it's been explained to me, as I've studied it, a lot of these people who now fetishize socialism uh, are exactly those who became adults sometime after communism existed. So any of us who actually lived um, and had any sort of political consciousness during periods of socialism and communism saw how brutally exploitative and shitty it was. Uh, For a lot of people in the 20s, in their 20s and into their early 30s, the concept of communism and socialism is much more theoretical than real. And so they are taken by the sort of utopianism of Marx's writings and sort of this, the ideals of social democracy as they, as comes out of the mouth of some of our members of Congress right now. But we know the reality is far, far more brutal. So that's my explanation and my understanding of the younger folks. I understand them better than that, than I understand the older violent left. Uh, and again, I don't, I don't, I don't agree with an affinity for socialism any more than I agree with an affinity for, you know, 
for other forms of extremism, but I at least understand it. I understand where it's coming from, even if I think it's stupid. Yeah. And I, I'd be curious if you think this makes me an asshole. The 20-year-old or the 30-year-old who believes in, in radical socialism or borderline communism, it's because they can't make it in capitalism. In other words, if you can't be an entrepreneur, if you can't be a creator, then I want the state to take care of me and I want, uh, I want there to be wealth distribution because I can't make it in this world on my own. In other words, you know, these, these people opt out of, of playing a, a um, agency, self-empowered, freedom-oriented. I, I, I got thrown out of high school at 18 and I became, you know, a success in a place like America, we can do that shit. Right. And so, um, but these folks for whatever reason, can't figure out how to make it in life, probably still live in their fucking parents' basement and, and sort of want a, uh, a handout, but that that's the grumpy old man that I'm aspiring to be. That's what he thinks. <laughs> so I think there's a second piece to this. You said can't. So when you say can't make it, that means that they aren't capable of making it. So that may be some percentage of it. But the part that makes me crankier, like the can't, I actually makes more sense to me than the don't want to. Um, so the, the problem that I have, and this will make me sound like a grumpy old man, perhaps, but, you know, I think it's worth unpacking some of this is, you know, the person in their, in their 20s or 30s who has have a new job every eight months because they left the job because, you know, they weren't getting enough yoga, you know, um, at their workplace or something like the that. The avo toast sucked there, Alec. No. So, the, so this is another thing. So a lot of the affinity for socialism that I hear comes from people who can make it in a capitalist economy, but don't want to. Um, you know, I had, I had to have a conversation with a mentee of mine, and this person had, you know, Ivy League undergraduate, Ivy, you know, an MBA from super fancy Ivy League school, you know, and, you know, got all these great job offers. And every 10 months, he changed jobs and, you know, came to me looking for help with something. And at a certain point, I said, you know what, I'm not actually going to do this introduction for you to this company to help you get this job. Because I think you need to keep a job for three years. And I think you need to stop complaining about each and every place you go, that most people around the world would kill themselves for this opportunity to work there. And so I do think that there's, there's something weird, um, something really weird in the water right now. Uh, and it makes it, and it, I would, I'm really glad I'm not a CEO right now uh, for this reason alone, where navigating this would be very difficult for me. Um, I would have to be at arm's length from it. It's, it, 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 it's difficult for me to be sympathetic to this, yes. to people thinking that their workplace has to be, you know, essentially a mirror of their home, you know, in terms of recreation, food, you know, this, it's like for every, again, for every minute of work, you need a minute of yoga. It's hard for me to be sympathetic to that. Have you been to the Facebook campus? I have. Yeah, the first time I went to that campus, I thought we're we're just totally fucked. This is this is I don't know if you remember George Carlin's riff on what he called the pussification of America. 
<laughs> and I have not heard it, but I don't. Just knowing that it's George Carlin and knowing what the knowing what the topic is, but, you, you know, get the so whole story. In, so what's interesting is that started at Google and Facebook. That you know we're going to create this sort of utopia enclosed space. We're going to do your laundry for you. We're going to feed you like your kings. Has spread very broadly. So it actually may. I can understand the business sense that it made for Facebook and Google. They're like, we're going to make you never want to leave. We're going to solve your every every problem. You're going to be here 14 hours a day because it's kind of awesome being here. What's interesting is that it's then spread so far afield into the workforce that has created some fairly remarkable distortions. My favorite one about this, of course, is uh, uh, when little Jimmy or Sally doesn't get the promotion and mom calls the boss. So this is funny. So I'm a university professor and a parent has never called me, but a friend of mine who teaches at Wharton, he, you know, he teaches MBA students. He has students in their mid and late twenties. He has, he has mommy and daddy calling him about grades. I mean, I got to tell you, if I ever get a call from mommy or daddy, either of one of my students, who's a graduate student, who's a grown ass adult or mommy and daddy of some employee complaining about some promotion, I am, oh boy, I will not. It will not be a positive or productive response for me. (laughs) And this will make me sound like the grumpy old man I've always been in training to become. When we were kids, and I I remember doing it, doing stupid boy shit at school, getting into trouble, going to the principal's office, having a note sent home to mom. And when mom got a note saying I'd been a bad boy at school, mom punished me. Well, today, it's a complete 180. Right. If, if the teacher says something bad about the kid, the parent calls the teacher and says, what kind of an asshole teacher you are? My kid's an angel. Yeah, well, you know, it's fine. My wife is a teacher. And uh, I do think that this my experience is this is something really reserved for you or more representative of, you know, call it the top. I won't say the top one percent, but the top 10 percent. Um, so like my wife teaches in, a you know, low, moderate income community and what she actually gets from the parents is a whole hell of a lot of appreciation. But if you talk to, when we talk to her friends who teach kids at private schools, it's that dynamic that you're describing. So I think part of this is demographic as well, where I think that, you know, the, the wealthier you are, the worse this is yes. in many respects. You know, it's the kids who are born on third base or second base for whom this, in many respects, I think is the worst. Yes. So if we sort of go back to some of the themes of your book for a sec, of course, after the Great Depression, we had the Roaring Twenties, but then we had the Dirty Thirties. And so if, let's, let's say the, let's say we'll be optimistic and the roaring for the most part will be good roaring and not uh, violent roaring. How do we make sure as a society, as business leaders, as educators, never mind politicians, that the boom that we're having now, the breakthroughs in technology, innovation categories, and education is being transformed, and, and so, uh, so many positive things that we've talked about and others, that, um, you know, I forget who said it now. It's a great quote. Uh, the future's already arrived. It's just not evenly distributed. Do you know who said that? I don't, but I know the quote. It's a I know great quote. I wish the, I could. The future's already here. It's just not evenly distributed. Yeah. Right. And so how, my, I guess my point is, if we are at the beginning of a, let's call it a positive roaring 20s here, 
How do we make sure that it doesn't turn into the dirty 30s and that the, the, the opportunities that get created are much more equally distributed than historically they have in times like this? Yeah. So look, this is at the heart of this book of mine, The Raging 2020s. This is really what the book is about. And look, there are some things that are big picture. I'll give you one big picture, one small picture answer to this. Big picture is we need to rewrite our social contract. You know, so every now and then you have to reestablish the balance of power between citizen, government, and business. Uh, and so there is, you know, as we we were talking earlier about the move of the base of our economy, economy going from being dominantly agricultural to industrial. Well, now the base of our economy is going from being industrial to increasingly technology rich and knowledge based. So we're in, an, we're in another difficult transition. We're transitioning out of an industrial economy into a technology rich, knowledge based economy. And in the same way in which we made interventions to help ensure that industrialization benefited more people on hopefully as meritocratic a basis as possible, so too do we have to do that again today. So that's the big picture. Okay, so let's double click on that and give me a small small picture response to this. You know, one of the things that I dig into, and it might seem numbingly boring, but it's actually incredibly important, is tax. So, you know, as globalization has taken root, what it means is that you can move people, capital, and goods all around the 196-country chessboard, right? But part of what that's also meant is that the world's wealthiest individuals and corporations are able to tax optimize. Note I said optimize and not evade. They aren't breaking the law. But you know, the world's wealthiest individuals and corporations are able to pay no tax, because, you know, they domicile their IP or their operations or the paper base of their headquarters in a tax-optimized location. And so this is why every now and then, you know, Christopher, I know you read the Wall Street Journal, you can read, oh my God, you know, how is it that one FedEx driver, one FedEx driver, one dude paid more in taxes than the, the more in federal taxes than the entirety of Federal Express? How is it possible that one 17-year-old barista at Starbucks pays more in taxes than Starbucks? Well, FedEx and Starbucks aren't breaking the law. The laws are just very deeply wrong and fucked up. So one of my more specific things that I get into is not that we need to increase taxes. It's not do we increase the marginal tax rates for top earners from 37 to 39.6%. No, that's not it. What it is, is we need to make progress on things like tax havening, global minimum corporate tax, and other such things. So the problem is when you raise taxes in the United States, just sort of the incremental rates, things like this, it fucks people who are playing by the rules. But we could all pay less in taxes if we actually addressed the problem of tax optimization that takes place right now, um, which enables FedEx to pay less in federal tax, but federal taxes than one FedEx driver. That is one specific thing. And progress is being made on this. And interestingly, it's one of those things that actually pulls the right and the left increasingly together. 
Um, some progress was made on, to, on this under Trump. Progress is being made right now under Biden. This is one of those things that I'm more hopeful on. And I go deeper into this, into the book, The Raging 2020s. But this is a you know, big picture. We need to rewrite our social contract. And then smaller picture, there are lots of ideas like this to make sure that we aren't continuing to just screw everybody who is working hard and playing by the rules. Awesome. Okay, so there's lots here. Let's maybe start with tax optimization. First of all, just the phrase, I love. Because every time people talk about taxes, there's an implication that what they're talking about, and it's more often not the case, increasing taxes. And what we all know is the number of times that a tax goes away or gets decreased uh, is not often. And so they, they quickly become an entitlement. As a matter of fact, the income tax was not supposed to be here forever, right? It was supposed to be a temporary measure. And so this idea of tax optimization, that is to say, um, who's paying for what is a good one. The other one um, that I hope is part of the broader tax optimization discussion is it drives me nuts. And look, Trump did it and Biden's doing it. And I'm a rat, by the way, I'm a radical independent. I'm I'm not associated with one or the other. During the last election, I voted um, for a a Republican and a Democrat on the same card. So I don't, you know, I'm not one of those. In other words, I piss off everybody in my life all the time. (laughs) But whenever the government talks about, oh, we need to do this, we need to do that from a taxation point of view, what they never fucking talk about is, oh, and by the way, we're going to do a new six trillion stimulus or whatever it is we're going to go do. And we're going to force ourselves to go um, cut at least a trillion over here to at least in part fund this new thing that we don't want to do. So in other words, there's never a discussion about tax optimization in the context of A, who pays for what in this pie, and B, what are we not going to do in the government to help fund what we're going to do, even if we're not going to fund all of it with uh, spending cuts. I think if we're making meaningful increases, there's got to be a discussion about tax cuts or about spending cuts, because I just don't believe that at any moment in time, there isn't a billion dollars worth of waste in the federal government. No, I look, I think that's a perfectly reasonable statement to make. You know, I've seen a lot of American taxpayers' dollars spent uh, incredibly well and overwhelmingly in our interest. And there are other parts of government where I'm like, what would actually be the consequence of closing the doors there? Uh, and so there's a lot of truth in this. And, you know, one of the things that you know, we were talking about earlier, Christopher, was the willingness of each political party to be willing to speak truth to themselves about their own constituencies inside inside government whether it's political constituencies whether it's you know favorite parts of government and so i think that the unwillingness of republicans to address the parts of government that they love but which are most wasteful and the democrats unwillingness to address or ever consider cutting funding into the departments and agencies that they love, but which are also most wasteful, it creates a situation where we're just constantly increasing everything. And that is not 
that is not in our interest. But, you know, the, the bigger point for me here is to take a big picture view of it, too, and think about it, as you've suggested, looking at what's coming in and what's going out at the same time. Big picture view of what is government taking in? How can we do that more efficiently, more effectively and more fairly? And what is going out? What is really in the prevailing interests of, of taxpayers in terms of how we spend their hard earned money? Yes. And, you know, as somebody who lives in California, when you look at the total tax picture here, so not just income tax, but uh, sales tax and how your home tax and all, all of it, we're over 50% for sure. We work for the government till July 4th and maybe a little bit longer. And, you know, that's pretty angering. Now, at the same time, we have an extraordinary opportunity living in California. We have an extraordinary opportunity being an American. I'm an immigrant to this country and I come from a very good country where there's lots of opportunity. But for me, there was way more opportunity here than there would have been in Canada. There's no question about that given uh, the field that I am in. So I guess my point is I appreciate a lot of what the government does. I appreciate the shit out of our military. I appreciate the shit out of our law enforcement. I really enjoy the roads that we use on a daily basis. Uh, I'm really glad that the Golden Gate Bridge hasn't fallen down, you know, et cetera, et cetera. There are many things that I, you know, I'm not one of these government bashers. However, I think if uh, Governor Newsom, who I'm no fan of, were to announce today that the state of California just did a deal with Amazon and Amazon's taking over the DMV. My sense is that would pro that decision would probably have a 90% approval rate because if you think about how easy it is to return something to Amazon and you were able to go and interact with the DMV at that level, um, that would be awesome. <laughs> and so I guess my point is you, you sort of hinted about it a little bit earlier, which is how do we have a more fiscally responsible and more entrepreneurial-like mindset in government um, than we appear to have? I think the short answer to that is the Democrats are too tied to the far left of their party and the Republicans are too tied to the far right of their party. I mean, that might seem like a really short, almost trite answer, but I do feel like but this is why the game theory on this is so difficult to work out when you, it's easy for us to talk through this stuff, but then nothing seems to happen in Washington. And it's because of the dogma of a lot of the people who have the most power. So the interesting thing on this one is, um, what's the average age of somebody in Congress today, Alec? Do, do you know, roughly? I don't know. I don't know, but I do know that among Democrats, like if you look at the, the age of Democratic leaders, I think they're, I don't think any of them are below 76. Like okay. the top three leaders among Democrats in the House are Nancy Pelosi, Steny Hoyer, and Jim Clyburn. All of those three are over 80. Um, it's, it's pretty darn old. Yeah. Now, before I say what I'm about to say, I have a 91-year-old father-in-law, and he has transformed my thinking about what's possible because uh, he's a farmer, and right now he's probably in a ladder up a tree dealing with peaches. Um, and his intellectual capability is extraordinary. So, caveat, caveat. That said, one of the things that we've been writing a lot about, Professor, is um, something that I, uh, we don't understand why isn't 
why it isn't much bigger news, which is today in America, we have roughly 138 million people who are Gen X and boomers and above. And we have approximately 140 million people who are millennials and Gen Z. And our thesis goes like this. If you're 35 and below, you're what we refer to as a native digital. And if you're 35 and above, you're a native analog. And the, and the definition simply is where your primary experience of life is. And you and I, given we're native analogs, we're both very technology savvy, use the technology all the time, but our primary life experience is in the analog world and our digital experience is an adjunct, an add-on, and an important and valuable and enjoyable, et cetera, one. But uh, we, you and I would rather meet in person to have a beer than crack open beers over the internet, right? Yes. Uh, native digitals, their primary experience of life is digital first, and analog is the sidecar, the add-on to their life. And that is an incredibly profound insight. It changes thinking on all sorts of things. Um, and so here's my point. My fear with the education system, and it's my fear with the political system as well, in the, in the real world, the native digitals have already taken over. And yet, the people in government and the people who run most businesses uh, and most educators are living in a world that doesn't exist anymore. And it won't be until native digitals are running the education system, are running the government and our CEOs until um, some of this stuff gets sorted out. And I don't know that we have the time because of the political unrest that we talked about. I don't think the native digitals want to kill each other the way the native analogs do to put, to put it simply. And I think we're in a situation where the sooner the native digitals take over the better, in my opinion, because <laughs> the native analogs, at least in America, aren't doing a very good job right now, in my opinion. But the timetable is two or three generations away from having a native digital president. And so how do we, A, how does that sound to you? And then B, if it sounds anywhere near smart, what do we do to get there sooner? <laughs> well, I would say two things. I would say, first of all, ultimately, you know, the, the leaders we have are leaders that we elect. You know, there was one point at which, you know, the, there were, you know, the remaining candidates for president were like Liz Warren, Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden, and Donald Trump, you know, all of whom mid-70s or older. Ultimately, the people who are responsible for that are the voters, right? And so the first changes that need to be made ultimately come down to the voters themselves. So this is a case where I would say the native digitals, if they want this change, then what they have to do is they have to register to vote, they have to organize, and they have to vote. You know who's really, really, really good at voting? Older people. They vote far, 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 far more reliably than young people. If you look at the data, it's bonkers. Young people will go to, they'll go to protests, they'll put things on social media, they'll do, but when it comes to voting, their level of actual voter participation is low. Older people watch the nightly news, read the newspaper, don't necessarily spend, you know, may not spend as much time posting on social media, though many do, but you know what they do very reliably? They vote. Um, and democracy is ultimately a participatory sport and you can't win if you don't play. And so the key thing that I would say this, if I were just to be, you know, as I was a little critical of 
sort of native digitals earlier, I'll do so again, is I identify with a lot of the political values, but the political values will not be realized unless there's political participation. So that's thing one. Thing two is, I think two is, I do think that this is a case where the parties themselves um, have different values. So the Democrats historically are the ones that have held people in power longer, in a manner of speaking, than the Republicans. So if you look at, like, the Republicans had, I think it was like a 40-year-old Speaker of the House in Paul Ryan. Um, you know, there's nobody 40 years old, even remotely in a position of power in the United States Congress who's a Democrat. Barack Obama was a real insurgent um, because he ran when, quote unquote, it wasn't his turn. And in the same way in entrepreneurship, Christopher, great entrepreneurs don't wait their turn. You know, they see an opportunity and they attack it. Uh, the same needs to be, the same has to be true in politics and in government as well. The antibodies in the Democratic Party, though, against insurgency seem to be a little bit stronger than those in the Republican Party. But as was demonstrated with Barack Obama, you know, who ran against, I think it was like seven different opponents, all of whom were much longer standing uh, members of the, the party and the Washington establishment. He went out and beat them all. It can happen. But uh, my assumption is it's not going to happen for 2024. You know, a lot can change between now and then. But uh, it looks like the Democrats are going to field Biden um, unless something uh, very strange happens. And um, and it looks I don't know. You tell me. I mean, you're you're, you're the political expert. Are we almost predetermined to have uh, uh, Biden versus Trump, too? So I I don't know that I'd call myself a political expert at this point, but what I will say is whatever you think is almost certain to happen in two years is not going to happen. I mean, hasn't that sort of been the rule of of recent years is whatever we thought, oh, well, this is definitely going to happen, like doesn't happen. And a lot of the people who emerge, a lot of the things that happen are something that were unimaginable. Like if you had said in 2000, if you had said in, you know, after George W. Bush became president, that the next Democratic president is going to be a guy named Barack Hussein Obama, who at the time was a state senator from outside of Chicago who just gotten his ass kicked running for Congress, you would have said, oh my God, Democrats aren't going to, obviously aren't going to take the White House for 20, 25 years. Well, guess what? It didn't take 20, 25 years. If you had said in, 2013, 2014, the the next Republican president is going to be Donald Trump, you would have done drug testing on whoever said it, right? You would have been, that person would not have been a credible, a credible person to have a conversation with. I watched on live TV, him come down the escalator, Trump, and give that speech. (laughs) And my wife, We were actually in New York and we were in a hotel room and we were getting ready to go have lunch with some friends. And so she was, you know, doing what ladies do in the, in the, in, in the bathroom. And I screamed her, baby, he just called Mexicans rapists. Like I, it, it was, it was hard to believe that that guy was going to be president. And so here's my point. My point is whatever you think is impossible or unexpected is 
neither impossible and ought to be expected. So I'm not drawing any great grand conclusions about what's going to happen with either party in future years out, much less 20 years out based on the world as it is at the beginning of 2022. So 2024 could be DeSantis versus uh, Harris. It could be anything. I think that if it were today, it would be Trump versus Biden. Like if you had to set the field right now, it's Trump versus Biden. And who wins if it was today? Uh, I won't. I won't conjecture. I won't conjecture. I'm. Yeah. I won't. I won't guess. Well, I. I, I would tell you. I think if the election was held tomorrow morning. Yep. I think Donald Trump's a two-term president. So, and what I think is, whatever is true today won't be true in two years because things are always changing. Yeah. Um, there might be names we aren't even discussing right now. I mean, who had heard of Pete Buttigieg? Right. Um, and he was all the Andrew Yang, like Pete Buttigieg and Andrew Yang were names that nobody had ever heard of, but they were much hotter candidates for a minute or two than all these people who had been senators for 20 and 30 years. I mean, Pete Buttigieg and Andy Yang were bigger, were, were, were candidates after Cory Booker and Kamala Harris had to drop out. I mean, who is the Pete Buttigieg or the, that breaks through or the, the, Barack Obama, who breaks through, or the Donald Trump, who comes out of nowhere, we don't know. And so that, for all that I've done in this world, I've come to expect the unexpected. Yes. Crenshaw looks pretty interesting to me on the, on the Republican side. But yes, you're absolutely right. Well, Professor, clearly you and I, I'll speak for myself. I could talk to you for many hours. We could do a 20-part series here, but I want to be respectful of your time. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to touch on? No, I just, I appreciate the opportunity for us to have had this discussion. And, uh, you know, keep rocking on, Christopher. I have a lot of respect for what you're doing. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I have a lot of respect for what you're doing. Um, it's, uh, you're having an amazing life. And when people with big brains who are doing cool shit start writing stuff and sharing stuff and teaching, and um, I really respect and appreciate your work. And uh, Professor, you're welcome back anytime. (laughs) Thank you. To be continued. Thank you, brother. Well, there he is, the legendary Alec Ross. And I sure hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. And if you did, please share it with somebody you love. Share it with somebody else who believes in the power of real dialogue to create a different future. Also, don't forget, Alec Ross's new book is out now. It's a stunner. It's called The Raging 2020s, Companies, Countries, People, and the Fight for Our Future. All right. We would like to thank, well, of course, we'd like to thank you. Thanks for hanging out. We really do appreciate it. Our good friends at Otranet have been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years, and they offer a rapid relaunch program. Check out atre.net today. Our friends at NetSuite are the world's number one cloud ERP system for growing businesses. Check out netsuite.com slash different today. That's netsuite.com slash different. Our friends at Bottleneck.online are the world's leading distant assistant. If you need an assistant who's nowhere near you, who's technology-enabled and will never get near you, check out Bottleneck.online today. Our friends at OneLifeFullyLived.org are the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Check out the number one LifeFullyLived.org today. Our friends at Malibu Milk 
are the category queens of organic whole plant flax milk. And man, this stuff is great. I drink it pretty much every day. Visit MalibuMilk.com, milk with a Y, today. And on discount, or on checkout, type in discount code DIFFERENT15 for your 15% discount. That's MalibuMilk.com with a Y, DIFFERENT15 on checkout for the small, tasty change that makes a big difference. Also want to let you know, uh, at Category Pirates, we just published a really fun new book you can find on Amazon.com. It's already a bestseller, and it's called How to Build Your First Crazy Profitable Business as a Teenager. 18 Radical Ideas for 18-Year-Old Entrepreneurs and Younger. If you have a young entrepreneur in your life, go to Amazon.com and check out how to build your first crazy profitable business as a teenager. All right, I need to remind you that today's podcast is a sole property of the Loghead Oddcast Network, and all rights do remain perturbed. Please uh, consult your doctor, shaman, lawyer, mystic, yoga instructor, and, of course, category designer before acting on any of today's information. Uh, technical awesomeness and leadership uh, and building of Lockhead.com by Jamie Jay and Sarah Knox. Show notes by the Hansman talented GM Simon. Uh, RJ and EX Bobis, the brothers, uh, in charge of web development. And Cedric Biros does our graphic and web design. Our law firm is Weed and Jack, and our accountants are three balance sheets to the wind. Also, need to let you know, we record these oddcasts on squadcast.fm. If you want to do professional uh, studio quality podcasting in the cloud, check out our friends at squadcast.fm. FM. Please teach dialogue. Jay-Z was right. Listen to Tom Waits. Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Scott Omelonic. He's the uh, so-called editor of Stink, I mean, Inc. magazine. Thanks, Scott. Uh, we just ran out of time for you. All right. Thank you so much. We deeply appreciate you investing part of your life with us. Uh, stay safe. Stay legendary. And until we're together again, follow your different.